much. So let's pick up with the book of Isaiah. This is a uh, quick chart, straight from the Bible Project people. You saw the first of the videos. They have two videos that cover the book. So up until the exile, we covered at the end of last class. We'll watch the second one at the end of our class today. Okay. Uh, they do have these available. You can actually download uh, and print these charts. I, I will uh, warn you that it's a lot of detail, and it's very small print on an 8.5 by 11 piece of paper. Uh, so it's kind of hard to read in reality. Um, but that is where that's from, directly from them. I want to encourage you also, just on that note, that you supplement um, your educational process with whatever is good, that's helpful. And so, th I mean, that's why I use it. One of, the, one of my um, tasks, in my opinion, as, as a teacher or professor anywhere is to um, bring to your attention things that I think are good and beneficial. So same thing with uh, software, which by the way, one other quick note. I did send an email also uh, about the, the quiz. So the quiz is from now on. I told you I was trying to figure out how to incorporate your um, an assessment for your reading of the biblical book. You know, So that's a question on your quiz now. So instead of the quizzes being 10 points, they're 15 points. And it's a five-point question on whether or not you read the biblical material. So before you take your Isaiah quiz, which closes 11.55 Sunday night, make sure you finish Isaiah. I hope you're close at this point. Okay? Um, because that's the, the first one that I'm including that, if you're not close, then send me an email uh, and I'll extend the distance for you or something. Okay? So, But thankfully, other than Jeremiah, which is the next book, after that it's kind of downhill for the length of the book. Okay? So get through them, and remember, uh, it's in the description of the of the quiz online also, so just don't take it until you've either finished reading or read as much as you're going to read. And you can get 100% for the question, or you can get 50% or zero. So those are your three options. I read the whole book, I read half the book, I didn't read the book. All right. So if, if you read half of the book, you'll get at least, you'll get two and a half. So that'll work out to be in, I think it's about a, a half of a letter grade of your final Quick little review here for our timeline of the book of Isaiah and the time period that it occurs in. You can see Isaiah's prophetic ministry, as we talked about last year, last week, I mean, is about a 40-year time period um, right here, uh, 740 to 700 B.C. And as I mentioned last week also, you'll see, depending on who you're reading, it could be 742, it could be 741, it could be ending at 739, or, or I mean 700 or 701. Etc. So, a year or two is not much of a big deal when we're talking thousands of years ago. It's like a second out of a minute, you know? So, during Isaiah's ministry, there were also other prophets who were uh, ministering and, and speaking for the Lord. You've got Micah during this time period, Hosea overlaps, and at the end, Nahum overlaps a little bit as well. You also see here what we've talked about before, but you can see it visually, the kings that he... Um, is alive during and prophesying during. Who is the bad king on the board? Yeah, Manasseh, okay, the worst, all right? Um, after Hezekiah. So Hezekiah, we have like, you know, some of these glory notes about, but there's also things that he did that lead to a, uh, a destructive aspect for his kingdom. And then there's also his son, you know, the most evil of them all, Manasseh. All right? 
couple interesting features that we had uh, seen here. It's just this microcosm of, of the book of how it relates to um, everything else. And the book of Judgment with 39 chapters parallels the 39 Old Testament, and the book of Comfort, 27 chapters, parallels the 27 books in the New Testament. Now, we're actually going to um, look at a tripart division, but uh, a lot of people go with that. So our structure, and this is the one that we're going to go with, okay, as we're looking at the book today, is the first 39 chapters deal with God's retribution or judgment, okay, directed to Isaiah's generation. And then the second section, chapters 40 to 55, is the redemption or the hope directed to their future, okay, after they're in Babylonian exile. And the third part is restoration right living, 56 to 66, directed to the future exiles as they return to Jerusalem, okay? So they know ahead of the game what's actually going to happen if they would listen to Isaiah. Now, with that being said, I do want to make a few more comments on the structure. You start looking at handbooks, um, commentaries, etc. As I mentioned last week, you will find a lot of people that divide the book into two parts. Darushis is just one example, um, very common. The first uh, 40 chapters, or first 39 really, and then 40 to 66. Um, he does have an interesting aspect of this last section that I have not investigated, where he's got these nine chapters. Whether or not that matches up, I don't know. But that, that is worth um, investigating and looking at. <coughs> this is an uh, overview from David Dorsey. David Dorsey, I've mentioned him before. He has a book, The Literary Structure of the Old Testament, a commentary on Genesis to Malachi. It is not, not a normal type of commentary. Um, if you could pick this up, I recommend it. Uh, he's big on seeing there's uh, chiasmus or chiastic structures all through the Bible. So what he will have for each of the biblical books is he'll have an outline of the whole book, which is normally some kind of chiastic structure, and then throughout the book he'll also break them down into different sections, and they're usually chiastic structures also. Um, and then he'll comment. So you can see it's not real big, but he covers the in entire uh, Old Testament with these. Um, <coughs> when he looks at this, he notices that the historical narratives are the hinge point or pivot point in the book. All right? This is the parts of the story about Hezekiah and the extension of his life. And, and that's the, the pivot point there um, for the book. We are going to use uh, or refer to some of his material with his chiastic structures. Um, I want to mention Moir as well. <clears throat> if you were only going to buy like one book and you didn't want to have multiple volumes... Most of the commentaries in Isaiah are at least two, if not three volumes, and they go with their division. If they go with 1 to 39 or 40 to 66, that's two volumes. The first chapter, first book is on 1 to 39, the second is on 40 to 66. If they go with a tripartite division, a threefold division, then they usually have three books, and they correspond the same way. Um, so, Alec Moyer is <coughs> a uh, author, professor, et cetera, et cetera. But, so this is a one volume. All right, the print is decent size, but if you're going to buy like a one volume, this is a pretty good one. He also has uh, the Tyndale Old Testament commentary. is even smaller than this, so if you want a smaller, more reader-friendly, you could go with that. This one is more detailed, all right? That being said, I want to uh, 
refer you to a comment that he makes that I think is necessary for you to understand about the divisions of, of the text. He says it is worth remembering that in the in Q, okay, that's a, a scrolls found from Qumran, okay, Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, the Dead Sea Scrolls of Isaiah, what we call Isaiah 40, verse 1. Why is he care about Isaiah 41? Because that's where many people divide it, right? 1 to 39 and 40 to 66. Begins two lines from the bottom of the column, where 39a ends, without any suggestion of a break or a new beginning. Well, what's he saying? He's saying this idea of a break in chapter 40 is artificial. That's what he's saying. Now, with that said, a whole bunch of other scholars do divide it there, right? So, my, my only point is it's not as cut and dry as 1 to 39 and 40 to 66. This is his division. Not only does he not divide it at 40, he, he divides it after 37. And so his is a little bit unique. The book of the king, the book of the servant, and the book of the anointed conqueror. Okay? And so this first portion is about who's this king. The, the second portion about who's the servant, and the third portion about who is the anointed conqueror. All three of these, there are three themes that run through all three sections. And these are two of the most important themes in the book of Isaiah. One is the phrase, the Holy One. And the other is the aspect of the Messiah, which will become definitely related to the four servant songs. So in all three of these sections, there are connections, and we'll come back to that on another slide. The other aspect that he mentions is that with these, these three aspects, he has this diagram it demonstrates that as you're as you're reading through the book, and you're getting this perspective about a, a king, a servant, and a conqueror. All right, and you only see them as as the text unfolds through these different prophecies of Isaiah, and you begin to see that the the king fails, and the people's faith fail, and the the human solutions to problems. For each one of these, God has a solution. And this solution is his perfect king, his perfect servant, and his perfect conqueror. All of which come together in the future person and word of Jesus Christ. So, <clears throat> over here on the left side, you have the major empires that are being dealt with. Assyria, then Babylon, and then the world itself. The global alien world. Which, in not only Isaiah, but in the whole Old Testament, God's game plan, <coughs> matching up with Habakkuk 2.14, is that the name of God, the glory of God, would cover the earth like the seas cover the earth. That everywhere. And that is, that is what uh, he is driving at. <coughs> okay. So. So as, you, as you're reading, you've already read it, but as, as you're reading through and studying it, 
think through those aspects of it, all right? Um, so Isaiah, this is where we ended last week. Um, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1. So we got real far. The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah son of Amos saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, the kings of, of Judah. We talked about the idea of vision. We talked about how um, that was working in this sense with the prophets. I want to make a further distinction today about the priests and the prophets. Now, the threefold task of a priest okay, was to offer sacrifices for the people, to teach God's word to the people, and lead the people in cultic worship. Cultic doesn't mean like a cult. Religious system, the rituals of of the, the sacrifices of the temple and the incense and all that stuff. Um, in contrast, the prophets received messages from God, delivered the messages to the people, and then led them in, in, in worship. Um, the priests were teachers of the people. The prophets were more like preachers to the people. The priests inherited their ministry. Okay, they had to be from the tribe of what? Yeah, uh, no, no, Levi. Levi. Okay. They did not foretell the future, right? And they lived in a sound time, towns, ideally. The Levitical towns that were scattered throughout uh, the land of Canaan. Whereas the prophets, they're called by God. They foretold the future occasionally. What did we say last week? About how much percent? Five or ten, right? Yeah. Yeah. Over 90% was foretelling, right? Um, and they lived anywhere, you know, wherever God called them from, right? So, also, the priests were very numerous, because it's the whole tribe of what? Levi, right? So all of those people called out to be priests. They came from one tribe and family, they were males only, they were later divided by different uh, groups, and they were gifts from God to the people. The prophets, not as numerous, any tribe or family, males and females, later lived in schools of the prophets, that comes in, in that phrase is from uh, the time period of Samuel, and were gifts from God to the people. So they're both gifts from God to the people, but they have different roles, different functions. Uh, just like men and women, right? They have different functions sometimes, right? Different aspects of or different roles. Right? Mothers, fathers, different roles. Um, fathers don't give birth. Right? Are you glad? <laughs> All right. <coughs> All right, so what I want to do here is briefly touch on the 66 books, okay, kind of in summary fashion, because there's, there's no way we're going to break down, you know, every, every chapter. So let's do a summary, and then we'll get some details on some sections, all right? So chapters 1 to 12, prophecies concerning Judah and Jerusalem, closing with promises of restoration and a psalm of thanksgiving, right? So these are going to be about who? Jerusalem, the X, okay? So th these are going to focus in, in this area, right? Geographically speaking. 13 to 23, oracles of judgment and salvation for the most part concerning those foreign nations whose fortunes uh, affected Judah and Jerusalem. Okay? So I have a map of this, so I'll show you in a minute on the map, okay? But so now we're going to deal with prophecies, okay, and things that are dealing with all these nations that are surrounding, might as well go over here too, right? That are surrounding Judah. 24 to 27, Yahweh's world judgment issuing in the redemption of Israel, okay? 
So we come back to focusing on here again, all right? 24, and, and really the bulk of the rest of it is going to be in that area. 28 to 35 is a cycle of prophetic warnings against alliances with Egypt, closing with a prophecy concerning Edom and a promise of Israel's ransom. 36 to 39, history, prophecy, and song are intermingled, serving both as an appendix to 1 to 35 and as an introduction to 40 to 66. And then 40 to 66 are prophecies of comfort, salvation, and the future glory awaiting Israel. So that's, again, <coughs> the area here. So with a couple of exceptions in here, Okay, Edom. Edom has something, and um, also, let's see, in Egypt, right? It's really, even the one with Egypt, though, it's really about God's people not making the alliance with them. <clears throat> so, what chapters are really mostly not directed to Israel? stick in your head. If you want to divide the book somehow, 13 to 20, 23, pull them out and, and see them as directed towards the other nations. Okay, Everything else pretty much is mostly related to them. There's a little bit of exceptions put in too, but that's basically how it is. <coughs> okay. So, in Isaiah 1 to 37, Okay. Um, first off, the first the first five chapters that they they go together as a unit. Okay, chapter six is usually thought to actually have preceded historically one to five. So chapter six is the call of Isaiah, um, and in chapter six he he recognizes that he is a mess, and in one through five he's accusing God's people of being a mess. All right? And so there's this connection here that, listen, you're not the only ones that are a mess. I'm a mess too. All right, Here's what happened to me when I encountered God. And so theologically, it's as chapter 6, but historically, it's probably before chapter 1. So chapters 1 to 5 in the unit. <clears throat> chapter 1 shows the trauma of the nation, all right, overrun by enemy forces. Jerusalem has not been overrun at this point by enemy forces. So all around them. Shows the corruption of worship where sinful uh, conduct contradicted the holiness of God and the pervasive social injustices going on. Also brings up the issue of salvation coming from God by grace and that Jerusalem will be redeemed and there's a final judgment. Judah was beaten, occupied by foreign armies, they had corrupted the worship of God, and within the nations, the judicial system was unjust. Thus, the uh, nation was in the throes of death. Okay, they're, they're, they're on their they're slide down. Um, in this setting, God calls Isaiah to be his spokesman. First, Isaiah becomes a redeemed man, that's chapter 6. And his genius with language and his no noble status were applied in his calling as a prophet. Isaiah begins chapter 1 with a charge of rebellion proven by detailed evidence. Okay? And so remember the types of judgment that we talked about last week. This is going to be a courtroom scene. Alright? He says in verse 2, listen heavens and pay attention earth. Okay? Here's the witnesses. The Lord has spoken. I have raised children and brought them up but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's feeding trough. 
Okay, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. So divine chastisement is coming upon you because you do not know me, because you are a rebellious people, because unlike the ox who understands who the master is, you do not. They have turned their back. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. Okay, so that is probably the first occurrence. All right? Because we're only in verse 4, right? The Holy One of Israel. Um, 28 times in Isaiah, 5 times in the rest of the Old Testament. Okay, that's it. This is an Isaiah thing. Some scholars argue that Isaiah kind of made this phrase up. Now, he didn't make up the idea that God is holy. That's elsewhere. But the Holy One of Israel, that phrase... Okay, it's like an Isaiah specialty. Okay, the sovereign uh, moral authority of God, and they've turned their backs on Him. So if you turn your backs on the One who is sovereign, the One who knows all, the One who's going to bring everything and everyone into judgment and all the nations into judgment, and will one day rule the world and bring all nations under Him, where does that leave you? That leaves you out in the dark, right? That, that, that leaves you outside that whole thing. Why do you want more beatings? Verse 5. Like, don't you learn? Reminds me of the proverb, right? Um, it says that a, a rebuke to a wise person is more effective than a thousand lashes on the back of a fool, right? Uh, what are you, a fool? You don't understand? Why do you keep on rebelling? The whole head is hurt, the whole heart is sick. From the sole of the foot to the head, no spot is uninjured. You're completely chastised. Your hearts are stubborn, hard hearts. I completely chastise you. Wounds, welts, and festering sores, not cleansed, no comfort. Bandaged or soothed with oil. That's going to be a contrast, right? Because in uh, what? In Isaiah 40, he brings in the comfort, right? Comfort, comfort, oh, my people, right? The land is what? In verse 7, desolate. What was the promise of the covenant? A fertile land, flowing with milk and honey, right? That means abundance. It's desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your enemies were going to flee from you, right? If you were faithful to the covenant, God would drive them out. God would protect you. Foreigners devour your fields, a desolation overthrown by foreigners. Daughter Zion is abandoned like a shelter in a vineyard, like a shack in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, that's the remnants, okay, we would be like Sodom and resemble Gomorrah. What was left of Sodom and Gomorrah? Festivals, they have become a burden to me. I'm tired of putting up with them. 
When you lift up your hands in prayer, I will refuse to listen to you, even if you offer countless prayers. I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Covered with blood. Now we're talking about justice or specifically injustice. So we mentioned last week that the issue of justice is important to the prophets um, and for God's kingdom. I mentioned this morning, I'll mention it again right now, the idea of justice and judgment in the prophets has to do with things being put in their proper place. Uh, it's the word mishpat. Okay, so judgment. Judgment, justice. Okay, mishpat's the Hebrew word. So, when we think of justice and judgment, we think of courts of law, we think of everything that goes with that. This is more about putting things in their proper order. Retribution may come with that. That's true. But what is it that God wants? What God wants is he wants things put, wants things put back in order, in proper order. He wants people walking in step with him. They're his people. He's called them out of, out of Egypt to do what? To walk with him, to be his people. And instead of doing that, they are off of everybody else. And so he's going to come back and bring order. What is, what is uh, Christ going to do when he comes and rules and reigns? He's going to put things in order. Everything will be in order. The other Hebrew word, I also mentioned this in the last class, but the idea of shalom, which we think of as peace, okay? But shalom has to do with things being put in their right place also. So shalom, judgment, justice. These, these all have uh, uh, similar semantic domains. They're all connected conceptually with this idea. And in verse 16, he begins discussing um, what he's going to do with Jerusalem to purify. And so the first uh, 17, no, 15 verses, the first 15 verses deal with uh, Judah being called to account for their sins in a courtroom setting. They're on trial before God, and the heavens and the earth are the witnesses. Now, that is the same phrase, the heavens and the earth witnesses. I don't have the references written down here. But the heavens and the earth are witnesses when uh, Moses and Joshua have a covenant renewal ceremony. And the people say, yes, we will obey God and be faithful to God. And they call down the heavens and the earth as witnesses to this covenant. And so now God's calling in those witnesses as evidence against them. All right. Well, I think in part it's related to what I was saying with the fact that when um, uh, Joshua and Moses, when they do their covenant renewal ceremonies, they use the same phrase. So the, the whole earth, the heavens and the earth are, are witnesses to what's going on. I think it also probably relates to the idea that like nothing is unseen from God. Like the whole earth is his, right? The earth is his footstool. So, so he sees everything. So this is being called up a, against you. As, as witnesses. I mean, obviously, uh, the prophets are filled with figurative and metaphorical language, so, you know, the, the earth and the heavens aren't literally going to speak in the courtroom, right? But it's this metaphor that, listen, you know what you've done, I know what you've done, the whole world knows what you've done, it's all been 
So it's time to call account for that. He challenges and alleges their, their sin and their guilt. Um, and it's, it's time to give account for that. And so what you'll find in, in uh, the prophets is this mixture of both this judgment and there's also going to be grace mixed in with it. Um, so the first part of the book is often thought of viewed as the judgment and then the hope comes later. But even with the judgment, there's elements of hope, rays of, the, of uh, light that are thrown in there. And then the end of the book that deals with this hope and this restoration um, also has some rays of darkness if you refuse to come back to, to God, to Yahweh. So there's these um, multiple aspects of it. Um, all right. So then he continues in verse 16 dealing with this idea of how he's going to uh, purify Jerusalem. He, he urges them, he said, wash yourself and cleanse yourselves. Remove your evil deeds from my sight. Stop doing evil. Learn to do what is good. Seek justice. Correct the oppressor. Defend the rights of the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Those verses there, uh, verse 17 especially, which is an explanation of what stop doing evil means and seeking justice. Micah 6.8 is a famous passage uh, that's often used about seeking justice from the prophets. But the prophets all talk about this. This is what it means to live um, in harmony with God. This is what it means to, to walk with God, that we do these things. That's why how we live our life in the community and as a society matters. Like Christians should be the people most concerned with justice and injustice issues. And th that is... God, look at these groups of people that he was talking about here, the people that don't have anyone to stand up for them and defend them. And as Americans, I mean, we have a lot at our disposal. You know, we are wealthy. If you're in this room, I mean, you're, you're taking courses at a Bible college. So you're, I'm not saying you're all rich. Um, well, maybe none of us are rich. I don't know. Maybe you are. Um, but compared to the world, we are. The rest of the world. And so we have an obligation uh, to be involved with what's going on in the rest of the world and what's going on in our own city to promote these aspects. If we're not doing this, well, then we're kind of just like them because that's what they were doing. They were um, just indulging themselves. Isaiah will talk about that, but so does, uh, what is it, Amos uh, 4.1 or 4.3? You know, you fat cows of Bashan. You know, you're, you're just hoarding all this stuff so you can indulge while these people have nothing. You know, we looked at the book of Job earlier, and Job says, look it, I have clothed the, the naked, and I have fed the hungry. What is he saying? He's saying I've lived righteously. He's saying I've done what is part of this uh, covenant relationship with God. That's what God expects us to do. So, <clears throat> the, the trauma... The, the disaster that's going on and swirling around them, okay? Remember, this is at the time when um, the whole place is in turmoil. Um, the, the Assyrian army has, has come in all, all the way up to here. Um, we're going to see soon that Egypt is suggesting to Judah that they align themselves 
with them to protect against the encroaching Assyrian forces that are coming in. They've also um, mingled with the culture. Syncretism is, is the word for that. And so Isaiah is speaking against all of these different things. Um, the remnant that uh, I mentioned to you, throughout Isaiah we see there's a, a division within the covenantal people. Some are rebellious children, chapter 1, verse 2, we saw that, where, whereas some rely upon the Lord. Those, those are the remnant that he's going to leave, that small amount, always there's some. Um, and so that's what's going on with that. From there, he, he moves on discussing, actually he says in verse 18, come, let's discuss this. Um, though your sins are like scarlet, they will now be white as snow. Okay, so in this judgment, there's this hope aspect, okay? God is going to uh, do something. He's going to do a work to provide this. If you're willing and obedient, you'll eat the good things of the land. If you refuse and rebel, you'll be devoured. So you obey, you eat. You disobey, you're eaten. So which one? Do you want to eat or be eaten? Right? It's the same thing that happened in, um, in the, the wilderness when they were freed out of Egypt. You know, when, God, when the spies go in, the ten say, um, if we go into the land, they're going to devour us. And we won't eat the good things God has promised. The other two said, oh, no, we can take them. Let's go. Well, the majority won out. And so God says, okay, you worried about being eaten? Well, they're not going to eat you, but the wilderness is going to eat you. You'll be devoured in the wilderness. And so they have to wait 40 years to go eat of the land. So eat or be eaten, okay? Um, but if you refuse and rebel, verse 20, you will be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. You see the mouth of the Lord has spoken. What that means is done deal. It's going to happen. All right? Nothing you can do about it. Verse 21. The faithful city, what an adulteress she has become. Okay, so it's upside down. Everything is topsy-turvy and flipped on its head. You're the covenant faithful people. That's what you were supposed to be. That's what you were at one point, right? And now you're an adulteress. She was once full of justice, but we've already seen they're now full of what? Injustice. Righteousness once dwelt in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross. Your beer is diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels, friends of thieves that all love grass and chase after bribes. They do not defend the rights of the fatherless, and the widow's case never comes before them. Therefore, the Lord God of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, declares, I will gain satisfaction against my foes. I will take revenge against my enemies. I will turn my hand against you and will burn away your dross completely. I will remove all your impurities. I will restore your judges to what they once were. This is the order being put back in place, and he's going to do it. The temple is not off limits. See, they thought that Jerusalem and the temple were off limits because God had made this covenant, and, and what they failed to properly perceive was that their rebellion and their turning away from God broke the covenant, and God would take out the place, including the temple. He's already left it anyways. Afterwards, so in verse 26, I will restore. Afterwards, you will be called the righteous city and faithful city. So you have this idea of this city that's also being unfolded here as well. Of, of the book, you have uh, in this chapter, one, chapter 121 to 26, this city is being talked about. 
and then uh, two, two to four, and then four, two to six is brought up. And then in the last portion of the book, in chapters 65 and 66, three more times, this is brought up in contrast. So what is God going to do with this city, this city, Jerusalem? your memory on, on the, the, the map again. You can see here where Israel, the northern kingdom, they get taken out by Assyria in 722. And then Judah, that's the southern part. So Aram is, is there. Aram is Syria. Um, and then Assyria is over in the Mesopotamian area. I think uh, I mentioned last week to you, I put an article up by Alan Ross on uh, the background stuff related to There's a vying for power, okay? So once you take the other one, you get everything it already has. So once Babylon takes Assyria, they get everything Assyria already has. Gotcha. So they immediately get all of this. Now you gotta, um, you have to maintain it, because when there's a change in power, that's when everybody revolts and tries to get their independence. So you gotta send your forces to make sure that everything is still under control. Pay me my tithes, not tithes, my uh, tribute. <laughs> Pay me my tribute that you owe me, right? Um, and so, but Assyria never captured Judah, although 
or Jerusalem, I should say, more accurately. They surrounded everything else. Jerusalem was even surrounded for a three-year siege, but they didn't, they didn't get it. So Babylon just comes in through and blitzes through. So. What's, yeah. um, that's all we're going geographically. What's modern-day Judah? Well, the West Bank is um, Gaza, right? And so, and then the inland from that is um, Israel. So, but the West Bank is, is the West Bank, and then you've got Israel. I don't know if it's, um, yeah, I don't think I have a modern one in there. Um, your Bible may have a map in there. I don't have it in the back of my head. All right, so that's the geographic area that they're dealing with. And of course, Egypt, you know, e Egypt is, is over here. So that's, that's the turmoil that they're dealing with and, and how to resist that. So let me just leave that up. I don't have my outline, so I've got to see what, what my next uh, slide is. So 714 is where I'll take a break. So in 1 through 5, okay, um, we have the, the call in verse or chapter 6, which we'll get to in a minute. But this introductory unit, okay, the first five chapters, is the historical context. It's setting up for you the historical context. And then it's going to be the call of Isaiah. And you have two options, okay, or two things that are going to happen. The sin is going to be judged, and then the uh, salvation will be offered, which is your hope. So that's your judgment and your hope. So it's not just... The first 39 chapters are judgment. There's judgment and hope talked about. And it's not just that the hope is in the, the last part of the book either. They're, they're both talked about in, in the first portion of the book. So Isaiah is sketching out the situation in which he was called. And um, the basic theme that you find is the disobedience. And we read through chapter 1, and you can see that all over the place. If you go back and categorize and list all their aspects, it's filled with disobedience. There's, there's more disobedience that is listed also in chapter 2, verses 5 to 9, 3, 8, and 9, and in 5, 7. And it's in between the brackets of hope and no hope. And that's why you have the two choices. The sin with the judgment, that's the no hope, and the salvation with the hope. And so in between is all this disobedience. So sin's got to be judged, but there's this hope at the same time. Um... Chapter 5 contains no note of hope and ends with a vision of unrelieved darkness. In chapter 5, verses 29 to 30. Chapter 5 is <coughs> this image of, of the vineyard. And who's the vineyard? Israel. God's people is the vineyard. Um, someday I'd like to, to write on this topic. The vineyard imagery um, is all through the scriptures. Jesus uses it in the Gospels to talk about uh, his people, the nation of Israel. He talks about how you know, God had created this, this, this great vineyard, and um, when he came, when it came time to collect some of the, the produce, because the way it works is if I own the land and you work the land, well, at the harvest season, like I get a portion of it, you know, whatever our agreement was. And so it comes time for that, and and what do the tenants do? Well, the tenants beat up my people that I sent. So I sent some more people, right? 
And they do the same thing. And so then uh, Jesus tells the story. He says, so finally, the, the owner says, I know, I'll send my son. Surely they'll respect him. And in the, in the story, who's the son? Jesus. Mm-hmm. So they send him. But then the tenants say, oh, this is the son. He's the heir. Let's kill him. And they go kill him. And then Jesus says, so what do you think the owner is going to do when he shows up at that vineyard? <laughs> He's going to wipe them out and give that vineyard to somebody else. Of course, Jesus is telling them this is Jewish people um, in the first century. And that's exactly what happens. And so in, in chapter 5, I will sing about the one I love, a song about my loved one's vineyard. The one I love had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He broke up the soil and he cleared it of stones. This is how you prepare it, okay? He built a tower in the middle of it. This is to protect it. And keep out a wine press there. He expected it to yield good grapes, but it yielded worthless grapes, produce. So he prepared it, he protected it, and he expected produce, Okay? So verse 3, so now, residents of Jerusalem and men of Judah, please judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard than I did? This is the vineyard of Jesus. What more could I have done? I gave you everything. I gave you a land. I, I drove out the people. I gave you the, the, the fertility. I, I blessed it. I protected it. And, and what did I get in return? Why, when I expected a yield of good grapes, did it yield worthless grapes? Now I will tell you what I am about to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it will be consumed. The hedge protects it. Wild animals, etc. I will tear down the wall and it will be trampled. The wall does the same thing. It protects it. So he's going to remove the protection. The only reason we're not consumed is because God protects us. The only reason Israel was not consumed by the enemy is God protected them. The only reason Jerusalem was still standing was God was protecting them. I will make it a wasteland. It will not be pruned or weeded. Thorns and briars will grow up. I will also give orders to the clouds that rain should not fall on it. God controls the creation, everything. I'll tell the clouds no rain. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah, the plant he delighted in. So if you didn't know who it was, he just told you, verse 7. He looked for justice and he saw injustice. He looked for righteousness, but he despised its wretchedness. And there you are again, the theme of Justice is not being satisfied. And what's the next word in verse 8? Woe. Woe. And what's woe like? My, my fist is at your face. Hey, Doc, sorry, could you please go? Yeah, that's what it is. Woe to those who add house to house and join field to field until there is no more room. And you alone are left in the land. What are they doing? They're gobbling up all the land. What did God do to the land? He divided the land amongst all the tribes. And all the families in the tribes all had their own land. The rich are grabbing up all the land. They're keeping it for themselves. Well, pretty soon it says you're left alone in the land. Well, that's no fun. Now you got no neighbors. The neighbors are good. Why? Neighbors keep bad people off your land, right? Neighbors watch out for your land when you're not there. Neighbors watch out for each other. Oh, so now you own all this land, but you can't be on it. You don't have families in there anymore. So who's going to take care of all your plots of land? Well, they're going to go to waste, or you're going to have enemies come in and take them. In my hearing, the Lord of hosts has taken an oath. 
Indeed, many houses will become desolate, grand, and wealthy ones without inhabitants. For a ten-acre vineyard will yield only six gallons, and a ten-bushel of seed will yield only one. Woe, again, verse 11, to those who rise early in the morning in pursuit of beer, who linger in the evening inflamed by wine. At their feast they have lyres and harps. It's music, right? They do not perceive the Lord's action, and they do not see the works of his hands. They're blind to God. Verse 13, therefore my people go into exile because they lack knowledge. Remember I always tell you about that, um, I never remember the verse for some reason, but Proverbs, people without a vision perish. People without the revelation of God cast off restraint and go amok. That's what he's saying right here. Without revelation, they cast off restraint. My people go into exile for what? Because of lack of knowledge. Knowledge of what? Revelation. God's word. The dignitaries are starving and the masses are parched for thirst. Therefore, Sheol, death, has enlarged her throat and opened wide its enormous jaws. And down go Zion's dignitaries, her masses, her crowds, and those who carouse in her. Humanity is brought low. Man is humbled, and haughty eyes are humbled. So, what happens to man? Man is humbled. And then in verse 16, but the Lord of hosts is exalted. God will be exalted, and man will brought down low. Why? Because you refuse to humble yourself. So, God will humble you. Lambs graze as if in their own pastures. Verse 18, what's the first word again? Woe. So verse 8, verse 11, verse 18. Woe to those who drag wickedness with cords of deceit and pull in sin along with cart ropes. To those who say, hurry up and do his work quickly so we can see it. That the plan of the, here is the phrase again, the Holy One of Israel take place so that we can know it. Verse 20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light. 21, woe. Wise in their own opinion. 22, woe, heroes at drinking and fearless at mixing beer, who acquit the guilty for a bribe. So, woe, 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 woe. Continues in verse 24. To those who have rejected the instruction of the Lord, the, the instruction, the Torah, that's what, Torah is not law, Torah is instruction, the instruction of the Lord. They've despised the word of, there is again, the Holy One of Israel. That's three times in this uh, chapter. Therefore, the Lord's anger burns against his people. He raises his hand against them, and he struck them. That's discipline. And the mountains quaked, and her corpses were like garbage in the streets. And all this, his anger is not removed, and his hand is still raised to strike. What's going to come down the pipe right now? His discipline is coming. The hand is still raised to strike. He raises a signal flag for the distant nations. He's going to discipline how? With the other nations. Assyria, you ready? Babylon, you ready? Green flag's coming. Green light's coming. He whistles for them from the ends of the earth. Look how quickly and swiftly they come. None of them grows weary or stumbles. No one slumber or sleeps. No belt is loose. No sandal strap is broken. Their arrows are sharpened. All the bows strung. They're like a well-oiled military machine that is coming. You're not stopping them. Their horses' hooves are like flint. Their chariot wheels are like a whirlwind. Their roaring is like lions. They roar like young lions. They growl and seize their prey. They carry it off, and no one can rescue it. On that day, we talked last week about the day of the Lord, right? On that day, that's this, okay? You could say day of the Lord. You could say the day. You could say on that day, referring to the day of judgment. DSE, right, right? On that day, they will soar over it like the roaring of the seas. When one looks at the land, there will be darkness and distress, and light will be obscured by clouds. All that comes before Isaiah's fall. Well, before he tells you about his fall. It's a time of woe. It's a time of realizing your sin. It's a time of recognizing the evil in you. 
then we have Isaiah's call. And he tells you about it. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a high and a lofty throne, and his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above him. Each one had six wings. With two they covered their face, with two they covered their feet, with two they fly. And one called to another, Holy, 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 the three times holy thing. It's the Lord of hosts. His glory fills the earth. This is like a super superlative. You know what a superlative is? Holy of holies, right? So superlative. This is the holy, the holy, the holy. Like all three. Okay? The super superlative. foundations of the doorway shook at the sound of their voices, and the temple was filled with smoke. And then I said, woe is me. I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. And because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Okay, here's what happens. Same thing with uh, Asaph in Psalm 73. You look at the world through one set of glasses, and then when you see God, everything this is why unbelievers cannot understand believers, because they're looking at things completely different, upside down. Isaiah, when he sees and he encounters God, he's ruined. This is the ruination of Isaiah. But it doesn't end with there. There's the restoration of Isaiah in verse 6. One of the seraphim flew to me, and in his hand was a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar with tongs, and he touched my mouth with it. And he said, now that this has touched your lips, your wickedness is removed, and your sin is atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, who's to go? So the ruination in, in verse 5, the, the restoration in verse 6, and then the invitation in verse 8. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, who should go? Who will go? I said, here I am, send me. When he sees God and he accepts this mission, what is God's mission? Well, the mission is that all of the earth is filled with his glory. Isaiah 6, verse 3. Glory fills the whole earth. Or Habakkuk 2.14 that I bring up all the time. He says what? Verse 9. Go, say to these people, keep listening but do not understand, keep looking but do not perceive. Dull the minds of the people, deafen their ears and blind their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their minds, turn back and be healed. That's a tough passage. I'll try to comment on it in a minute. And I said, until when? Until the city lying in ruins. Isaiah is to preach, but they're not going to listen. Now, Jeremiah preaches, talk about him that preached for like 40 years, and guess what? No one listened to him either. Isaiah is preaching, and he's saying, what's going to be the response as Isaiah preaches? Are they going to listen to me, or will they not listen to me? And so, you see in verses 1 to 7, the holiness and the glory of God. I'm talking about just Isaiah 6 right now, okay? Exodus 15, 11 says, Who is like you, O Yahweh, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? In 1 Samuel 2, 2, that there is none 
holy like Yahweh. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Psalm 77, verse 13. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? And Isaiah 40, 25 says, To whom will you compare me that I should be like him? It says, The Holy One that prays against us. The holiness. So the mission that God sent him on, what, what is the nature of this mission in verses 8 to 10? Well, in uh, Matthew 13, verses 14 to 15, Isaiah is, is quoted. He says, You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but see, but never perceive. For the human heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. What is this blindness that's just going on? Like, why, why do you send a prophet, but they're, but they're not going to listen? See, this, this is where salvation and judgment come together. They coincide. They collide. There's, there's an aspect where it doesn't matter to some degree that they're not going to respond. God is continuing to bear witness to himself for his honor and his glory. They will not be able to say they have not been told. He sent specific messengers to them to tell them. And so you're so hardened you, you're, you're not going to respond to what God is doing and that's why we need to repent soon with our sin, we need to not build up these walls of sin, this callousness, this hard heart but instead as Paul says to have circumcised hearts, hearts that are our flesh, um, that are sensitive to what God is, is calling us to do in uh, John chapter 12 verses 39 to 41 um says he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and see him. So again, we have this passage in Isaiah being quoted in the Gospels, both the Synoptics in Matthew and then in John. Um, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and, and he spoke of him. So this is a passage repeated. It's repeated then again in uh, Romans by Paul, probably chapter 11. So the work that God is, is doing is double-edged. It hardens and heals at the same time. It just depends on which person you are and what it's doing. Um, there's this aspect where every time you sit under the, the word of God, uh, you are doing one of the two. You're either hardening or healing. Or it's either different works of healing. You're either being closer to God, or you are building up more walls. And so, that's, that's what goes on, like, non-stop with the preaching of God's word. That's why it's, uh, it's good and it's bad when people sit in Bible studies for year after year after year. Um, if they're not responding, they're just like the people that Isaiah is preaching to. And they're increasing the judgment against themselves. So that's Isaiah 6. There's this holy seed, okay? Yeah. Um, so, do you believe... So, 
it's a vision that he's having. Oh, there? Yeah. It, he's not actually that or something like that. It's like a vision, right? Uh, yeah, he's giving us some kind of insight. Okay. I believe something like that. I don't know exactly how this works. So remember, you know, it's all, it's, it's figurative, it's metaphorical, it's poetic. Um, the Bible Project has a good video on uh, holiness, yeah. and, and they use this passage in that, and then they go all the way through the Bible, all the way to Revelation, demonstrating this. So, I don't know, seven-minute video or something? So that's, it's worth uh, checking out, good video, Bible Project, holiness, as I, as I think uh, the title of it. Or something. So Isaiah 6 to 12 opens with the story of the single sinner cleansed, and this section ends with the song of a saved community in chapters 12, 1 to 6. And so it starts out with this single individual and ends with the community in chapter 12. Within these brackets, the section does something characteristic of the whole book of Isaiah. It takes as its major theme a subtopic from the section preceding. In 126, the coming glory of Zion is anticipated in Davidic terms. Um, David is the first to occupy Jerusalem, 2 Samuel 5, 6-9. And things will be yet as they were at the beginning. The days of David come back again. So the Davidic theme is central in chapters 7-11. through 11. And against the backdrop of the um, king Ahaz, which lacks faith and trust in God, which is what we're going to talk about right now in chapter 7. And in contrast to the apostate Ahab, is the coming perfect king that's going to come as the, as the Messiah. So one of the things also that you can write down is that Isaiah 1 to 5 brings out this idea that's going to continue is um, how can we have what we should have? How do we get that out of what we currently have? So you got the, the what is and what should be. That's going back and forth. So this is what we are, this is what we have, but this is what we should be. How, how do we get that from, from here? And the answer is, is going to be that, that God brings that. Um, and that's, that's partly how the theme of the Messiah plays in. So in chapter 7, okay, after Isaiah has aligned himself, and we've seen how uh, he, by, by seeing God, the change in him, so this is what should happen to everybody. You see the glory of God and what should happen. You should change. There should be this marked change in you. And so it says in chapter 7, This took place during the reign of Ahaz, son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, uh, king of Judah. Rezin, king of Aram, along with Pekah, son of uh, Remaliah, king of Israel, waged war against Jerusalem, but he could not succeed. When it became known to the house of David that Aram had occupied Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz... The hearts of the people trembled like the trees of a forest shaking in the wind. Okay, so let's, um, it's still on the screen, so let's work with this for a minute. So the king of Aram, that's Rezin, okay? And he has made a coalition with who? The king of Israel. Against who? Jerusalem. 
what are the sisters of Israel and Judah fighting each other for? Well, because they're in rebellion. And so, <clears throat> those two have a coalition, and Judah's on the, the outside of it. So Ahaz is the king. And so the people are all worried now. We're going to be attacked. What are we going to do about this? Do I go to Assyria? Do I go to the other side and go to Egypt? Or, as he's been told, do I do nothing and wait and trust God? Like, what do you do when the enemy is attacking in every direction? So this is not a new theme. Moses was with the people after the Exodus, and the sea was in front of them, and the Egyptian army was behind them. They're surrounded on all sides. So what do you do? You stand firm and you watch the Lord's glory deliver you. That's what you do. And that, that might be what we're expected to do, but that takes a step of faith. Because God comes with you to heal us out in the kitchen in a minute. So you got to wait it out till then, till the knife's about at your throat, right? And then see God's hand deliver them. So verse 3 of chapter 7, the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out with your son, Shear Jashub, to meet Ahaz at the end of the conduit of the upper pool by the road to the fuller's field. And say to him, Calm down and be quiet. Don't be afraid or faint-hearted because of these two smoldering stubs of firebrands. What does that mean? Smoldering stubs. It means, they're, it means don't worry about them. They're, they're done. Like, they're, they're nothing. You're all concerned about them. They're nothing but a smoldering stub. They're, they're, God's saying they're already burned out. I've already taken care of them. Well, what do you mean? They're at my front door. No, stop. You think they are, but they're really not. I've already taken care of them. That's what he's saying. Rezmo Aram and the son of Remaliah. For Aram, along with Ephraim and the sons of Remaliah, has plotted harm against you. They say, let us go up against Judah to terrorize and conquer it for ourselves. Then we can instill Kabil's sons as kings. This is what the Lord God says. It will not happen. It will not occur. The head of Aram is Damascus. The head of Damascus is Rezin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria. The head of Samaria... What he's saying here is, I got it. I'm going to take them all out. Okay? They'll be done. And then we get to the controversial prophecy in 10 and following. The Lord spoke to Ahaz, and he says, Ask for a sign from the Lord your God from the depths of Sheol to the heights of heaven. Ask me anything you want, and I'm going to give you a sign to show you that what I just said is true. That you don't need to worry about Aram, that you don't need to worry about Israel, that you don't need to worry about any of these. I'll take care of them. What do you want me to do to show it to you? Now, this is unique. God's asking. What do you want me to do to show you? Now, Ahaz responds in what you might read and think is a state of humility. Oh, no, 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 I'm not going to test God. But actually, it's fake. He doesn't want a sign. Because a sign is just going to be further confirmation that he needs to stand still while the soldiers are at the front door. He don't want it. I don't, don't give me more evidence, okay? That's like when you're asking somebody to research something for you on two different positions, right? And they keep bringing all this evidence that's irrefutable. And this guy over here, this is the side you want to go with, and he doesn't have very good evidence. And this guy just keeps bringing more. And finally, like, you're, shut up. Don't give me any more. I don't want any more. I don't want to hear it. Why? Because you don't want any more evidence because you want to go with this route. That's what's going on. And so God shuts him down. He says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. You don't want a sign? I'll give you a sign. And what's the sign going to be? A virgin will conceive, have son, and name him Emmanuel. By the time he learns to reject what is bad and choose what is good, he'll be eating butter and honey. 
For before the boy knows to reject what is bad and choose what is good, the land of the two kings that you dread will be abandoned. The Lord will bring on you, your people, and the house of your father such a time as never been since Ephraim separated from Judah, the king of Assyria, is coming. So, there, there's a lot of stuff in here, um, and we're only going to you know, touch on it briefly. But the, the word you in verse 14, first off, that's plural. Okay, It's not a singular you. So the question is, is the, is the you, the Lord will give you a sign, you, Ahaz, or you, the people? So that's one question that has to be answered. You also have the name Emmanuel, okay? So God, God with us. Um, who is that? And then you've got the word for virgin or young woman, okay, that is in the passage as well. And then you have hermeneutical choices to make. Can a passage mean more than one thing? Can it have some meaning here, but another meaning here? So, let's try to put some of this together and, and try to figure out what to do with it. Uh, last week I showed you a chart that listed uh, some mountains, and on the mountains, uh, the point was that you can only see part of what's going on, and so a prophecy that you kind of understand what it's about here you, you uh, might not understand that it has fuller implications later on, okay? So that's one of the things that we have to keep in mind also. That would be like either a partial or a future fulfillment that is, that is used of it. So Isaiah 7 and 14, okay? Is this um, fulfilled in the time of Ahaz? Is it Jesus? Is it both? Is it, is it neither? So the, the word that's used, Okay, it can be uh, translated in certain places as as a young woman. However, the the traditional interpretation and understanding of the, the passages show that the, uh, there's no record exists of special attention given to 714 in pre-Christian Judaism. So the ambiguity inherent in the word is reflected in the divergence of Greek translations. The Septuagint has virgin, but some other Greek translations. So, you know, I told you the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew in 250 BC. Well, it's not the only Greek translation. There's other Greek translations, okay? Um, some other ones have the young woman. So, um, those are Jewish translations from the era of Christianity. So, it's thought by some that, okay, well, they translated it that way because Christianity already exists and they're trying to get rid of this messianic connection with Jesus. Um, Matthew, in chapter 1, 22-23, finds in the Septuagint of 7.14 a convergence of the sentence in Scripture with the, with the events that he is recounting, and he interprets it as prophecy and fulfillment. He quotes the Septuagint almost verbatim. Um, so the translation, the virgin, suits Matthew's intentions perfectly. If one supposes a divine intention in this connection, part of God's work was done through the Greek translator. The translation of the other uh, Greek versions, while accurate enough in the context, doesn't serve Matthew's purpose. However, even in Matthew, only a part of the prophecy is literally fulfilled. The incarnate son is named by divine command Jesus, not Emmanuel, right? So, um, and no effort is made to relate his childhood to the fulfillment of the prophecy concerning Rezin and Pico. But with Matthew, the verse took on heightened significance and importance, becoming a central issue in Jewish-Christian polemics about the Messiah and Jesus. Okay, so that's partly related.
related to the word itself. Okay, what about to Ahaz or to Ahaz's people? Well, the historical point is that God was saying, I'll give you a sign. So if it happens hundreds of years later, what's my sign to Ahaz, right? It doesn't help Ahaz at all. And the point was that God through Isaiah was, was speaking to Ahaz. So um, most, or at least a large chunk of, of traditional interpreters will hold that there is either either double or, or a partial with a later fulfillment. And the, the part of this was the Ahaz, and then Isaiah has sons, and then part of it is to Jesus way in the future. Now, what's going on in Isaiah has bearing on, but doesn't have to be identical also to what Matthew does with it. So Matthew specifically picks a word from the, or uses the Septuagint translation, that translates it as virgin, to make a point about Jesus. So Matthew clearly connects <coughs> Jesus' virgin birth and the Isaiah prophecy about a Messiah with Jesus. So <coughs> Matthew is clearly saying that Jesus is the Messiah, virgin birth, think that in Isaiah 7 there's a historical aspect going on also that God is making a case in the time period stop worrying about those enemies and trust me I'm the one who will take care of you so you could study that out uh, yourself and you will find a wealth of data available uh, on the topic and you will find that there is like most topics of opinion within even conservative theological systems. Okay, so that's Isaiah um, seven fourteen. So at the end of that passage, seven. Assyria is mentioned in verse seventeen. So. Then he continues on, and you have the phrase, on that day again. And so this is the judgment day. The Lord will whistle to the fly that is at the farthest stream of the Nile, and to the bee that is at the land of Assyria. Who's the fly and the bee? Yeah, those kingdoms, right? The Nile River, that's Egypt, right? And all of them will come and settle in the steep ravines and the clefts of the rocks, and all the thorn bushes and in all the water holes. And on that day, judgment again, the Lord will use a razor hired from beyond the Euphrates River, the king of Assyria, to shave the head, the hair on the legs, and to remove the beard as well. That's just a shame terminology. On that day, judgment again, a man will raise a young cow and two sheep, and from the abundant milk they give, he will eat butter. For every survival in the land will eat butter and honey. And on that day, every place where there were 1,000 vines worth 1,000 pieces of silver will become thorns and briars. And a man will go there with bow and arrow because the whole land will be thorns and briars. You will not go to all the hills that were once tilled with a hoe for fear of the thorns and the briars. I will be, uh, the thorns, or the hills will be places for oxen to graze and sheep to trample. And then he moves into the Assyrian invasion after that. And so uh, you have the transition at the end of this prophecy uh, or this sign that I, uh, uh, Ahab 
and from there he moves on and is talking about the coming Assyrian invasion, which he's going to continue on for a little bit. In, um, in chapter 9, however, if you flip over to chapter 9, you will see that Starts with uh, nevertheless, at least in the in the home, it says nevertheless. The gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, uh, he will bring honor to the way of the sea, to the land east of the Jordan, and to the Galilee of the nations. And so, here you see that it's a message of hope and consolation. We're still in quote the judgment book, and but there's this message of hope. And consolation going on. Through the deepest pain comes the greatest joy often, right? So great humiliation, I would say, precedes great exaltation. Okay, in order for the exaltation to take place, there's got to be this humiliation. You see this in Philippians 2, 5, and following with Jesus, right? He goes through this great uh, humiliation to be exalted above all, right? And so then you have this uh, passage that is quoted in, in Matthew uh, chapter 4. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of darkness, a light has dawned. You've enlarged the nation and increased its joy. Um, and this passage here, talking about uh, what God is going to be doing here, continues uh, talking all through here, verses 4, 5, 6, 7, uh, about what God's going to do. Notice the, notice the connection words uh, in the home and all of those, 4, 5, 6, and, and uh, I'll start with the word 4. So these... Uh, Three, three different uh, sections all connected. It says in verse 4, You've shattered their burdens from yoke and the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. Um, for the trampling boot of battle and the bloodied garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. And a child will be born for us. A son will be given to us. His government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor and Mighty um, God. And so uh, notice that it's a human birth in verse 6 that um, it's given by God. Um, in verse 6 also. And and their burdens are, are reduced in this passage. So this is another passage that 9-6 uh, is quoted on like lots of Christmas cards, etc. related to um, Jesus. Uh, chapter 10, verse 21, we'll pick up on the mighty God theme as well. The eternal Father, Prince of Peace. So all of these, again, there's, there's so many words and, and passages that you could pick up and, and study on in uh, the book of Isaiah. He continues on, uh, further judgment um, takes place. His hand is still raised, he says, in the, the next portion. Verse 10, or chapter 10 starts out with a woe. Woe to those enacting crooked statutes and writing oppressive laws. So again, we're focused on the justice um, aspect. Okay. Judgment on Assyria and then uh, the returning remnant. Chapter 11 is again um, about the shoot. Okay, So remember the stump and there's the, the stump that's left and there's going to be a shoot that comes. So chapter 11 comes back and we see a shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and strength, a spirit of knowledge, and of the fear of the Lord. His delight will be in the fear of the Lord. 
Okay, so this passage in chapter 11 um, points forward to um, the Messiah and Jesus as well. Israel will be cut down so severely that only a stump will remain. That was chapter 6, verse 13. But now we're told that a shoot will come out of that. The, the remnant of Israel, the stump, okay? But here we have um, an individual, okay? One of the things you have to look at in Isaiah, especially with the Messianic stuff and the servant songs, is are we talking about an individual or are we talking about the group? Okay, which, which is it? So here um, it says the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him in verse number 2. And then it describes what that looks like. So the stump is the remnant of Israel, but now an individual called the branch will come from the stump of Jesse. Since Jesse is the father of David, the Messiah um, may be called David. He is. The Messiah means anointed one, right? So that's used of, of kings, right? The anointed one. The and then used, pardon? Uh, I'm in 11. Um, so while uh, David is anointed, right? Samuel anoints him with oil. Uh, but ultimately, the anointed one, or mes Messiah fulfilling the Messianic prophecies, etc., is going to be the son of David, uh, Jesus. So, Christ is also called uh, the root of Jesse in 11, verse 10. If you recall the, the genealogical portion of Matthew, in Matthew's Gospel, the genealogy is divided into three sections, each one with 14 generations. And 14 is the number of David. D, D, D add up to uh, 14 because these had numbers for all the letters. And so all through Matthew's genealogy, um, what uh, Matthew is really shouting is David, 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 David. In fact, I think in the last section, it's, it's like, I think it's five times or something in the last couple verses. Um, so this connection... So in Matthew chapter 1, verse 17, it says, So all the generations for Ab from Abraham to David were 14. 14 is David's number, so that's twice. And from David, there is a third time. And from the exile to Babylon, 14, there's four times. And from the exile to Babylon, to the sorry, Messiah, 14. So five times in one verse in Matthew 1, 17 is the number 14 or the name David. And in that case, they're saying the same thing. Because David's number is 14, which is why most likely they're divided into three sets of 14. So Matthew, uh, a Jewish believer, writing to most of the Jewish audience, demonstrating that Jesus is uh, the king of the Jews, that Jesus is the Messiah, has to be from his lineage, David. And so that's why Matthew starts in the genealogy. chapter 11, okay? It says in verse 10, On that day the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the people. The nations will seek him, and his resting place will be glorious. So notice that as Israel is brought into the fold again, that who's going to seek him? The nations. Okay, it's, it's God's goal from the beginning. The nations worship him. In Genesis 12, 1-3, and then in Genesis 17, God had told Abraham he would have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and that uh, through that all the nations will be blessed through Abraham. And so here we see again God's plan, his mission to bring the, the word, the gospel. We'll talk about the good news in a little bit. 
um, through all the nations. On that day, verse 11, the Lord will extend his hand a second time to recover from Assyria, Egypt, Hathros, Cush, Edom, Shinar, Hamath, and the coast and islands of the west, the remnant of his people. He's going to recover the remnants by extending his hand. What does that mean? strike you down. The long arm of the law, right? What's that mean? You, you can't get out outside of their reach, right? They can, they can get to you. They have influence power. Yeah, the arm of God. Okay, he's going to extend his hand a second time to recover the remnant of his people who survived this judgment. So if you survive, now we already know since we've broken the book into, into the three sections, the second section, right? After chapter 40, the people um, are in uh, Babylon in exile, right? And then uh, from 50, 55 to 66, right? Then they are coming back into Jerusalem, right? And then that's when they're going to rebuild. That's the book of Ezra and Nehemiah talk about the rebuilding of the temple, right? Okay. So, <coughs> verse 12, he will lift up a banner for the nations and gather the dispersed of Israel. He will collect the scattered of Judah from the four corners of the earth. then chapter 12 is a song of praise. And so if chapters 1 through 5 were the call of, of Isaiah and the contextual or the context historically speaking, chapters 6 through 12 deal with getting ready for the king, the coming king. Who's this king? He's going to come out of that stump. He's going to come from that branch. He's going to be the wonderful counselor. He's going to be all these praises, the everlasting Father, all these things that are mentioned about him. He's going to gather his people back, and there will be a banner to the nations. So in 6 to 12, you've got this coming king. Well, if there's a coming king, a king needs a what? He needs a kingdom. And so chapters 13 to 27 are going to deal with, well, what, what's his kingdom going to be? This king that's coming. through 23 okay, is going to deal with what we had alluded to earlier, these judgments on all of these other nations. Now, I'm not going to go through every one of them. You can see up here on the screen the different ones. Okay, Just quickly, not even reading the descriptions, but just picking out nations. You can see Babylon, Assyria, uh, Philistines, Moab, northern Israel, um, Judah's enemies, Ethiopia, Egypt, Egypt and Ethiopia, uh, Edom, Arabia, um, Jerusalem, Tyre, okay, and Shebna, okay? So, you can see all these different nations, right? They're going to be um, judged by God. <coughs> and these oracles, judgment oracles, in 13 through 23, deal with each of these. And so, what God does is, he disciplines his own children with the enemy. But in that process, those enemies, okay, let's talk about Syria and Babylon specifically, they're on their own mission. They're on a global conquering mission, and they are filled with pride. And so God will judge their pride. So throughout chapters 1 through 5 even, what, what was this underlying problem with the people? Their pride. Their self-centered attitudes. And so what's the problem going to be with Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon? What's it going to be with Assyria? It's, it's the same thing. You know from uh, Daniel, 
eventually, but what does God do to Nebuchadnezzar? Because he does not humble himself before God and reveals himself to him, then God will humble Nebuchadnezzar. Um, we, we lift ourselves up in pride, and God will have to humble us. So we saw that in the portions of Isaiah we've already seen, that great exaltation comes only after great humiliation. So either you humble yourself and allow God to exalt you, or you go ahead and exalt yourself, have pride, and God will humble you. Jesus says the same thing when he talked about coming into a, a dinner feast, and he says, you all come in, and you want to have the seat at the right hand next to the, the guy that's hosting the party. He says, sit at the end of the table, and then you will be lifted up, you will be exalted when you're asked to come sit at the top of the table. Same thing, humble yourself, and you'll be exalted. Exalt yourself, and you'll be embarrassed when he says, um, sorry buddy, but that's his seat. Mm -hmm. Okay? So, Jesus is talking about the same thing, these themes that run throughout Scripture. So in 13 through 27, within the vision of the coming perfect king, there's a, a minor theme in the universal empire over which he's going to rule. So I just gave you the answer. Who is the king going to rule over? The globe, the universe, everybody. You can see this in uh, 9, 7, 11, 4, uh, 11, 6 to 9, 11, 14 to 16. So that's where, that's where the theme comes in, and then it's going to be expanded. Um, how, how is he going to get all of these nations under his rulership? So here one of the things that we learn is a, is a philosophy of history. We deal with the sovereignty of God on a, on a theological note. Um, you deal with what do you really believe about history? Are the Assyrians and the Babylonians and, and the the, the Aramites, are, are they, or Arameans, are, are they just running their own show, or is God behind it? Now, it's, it's easy kind of for us to talk about this today to the Bible, because we're separated from it. But, we had mentioned in my, my first class this morning about the Nazis in, in Germany and whatnot. Um, what about that? How do we view that? You know, if America was ever subjugated by, I don't know, pick whoever you want, right? Canada. China, right? How would Christians respond to that? Like, theologically, you know, like, we say we believe in sovereignty, but do we? What about Christians and other nations? I'm just talking from the American perspective, but there's Christians all around the world, right? What do you do if you're a Christian in Sudan? Okay, what, what do you do if you're a Christian in, in the Congo? You're, if you're a Christian in, uh, when Coney was ravaging, right? Um, how does this flesh itself out? Now, there are a couple of aspects that you do have to throw into that uh, puzzle piece as well. Um, Israel has a special covenant with God, so there's certain things that are related to their covenant. 
that are not necessarily transferable to everybody. Um, but behind the scenes of that is this idea of God being the ruler of the nations. And if he's calling them in, for them all to come to the table where they're going to uh, see his glory and then worship him, how does that all relate? So that's about the philosophy of history that, that uh, resonates through here also. Uh, the Lord is the world ruler, and when his day comes, he will exert his rule alike over heaven and earth. But at the center of all his operations lies his compassion for his own people. So the center of that is uh, his people, which now in the New Testament, that is the church being used as the lightning rod to the nations. So this is going to come to a dramatic climax in the contrast of two cities. The world city, the human attempt to organize the world without God, which falls and fails in chapter 24, verse 10, and the strong city of salvation in chapter 26, verse 1, which will stand. Okay? And let's go ahead and take a quick break, and then we'll pick back up uh, with this here. Okay? So as we're looking at the, <clears throat> the geographic understanding and realizing where the enemies are coming from and that the next section, chapters 13 to 23, deal with all of these different um, enemies of Israel, but more than that, nations that God wants subdued for his own glory, then we see from this map here, you can actually see where these nations are. Okay, So this here is a pretty cool slide. <clears throat> and it lists, it lists both the, the nation and where they're at and what chapters that we're talking about. And so you can see, as we mentioned earlier today, that basically chapters 13 to 23 deal very heavily with all of these other nations. Okay, um, I added Jerusalem to the map. It wasn't originally on there. Um, so that you could kind of see the contrast that 1 to 12, and then you've got 13 to 23, with 22 is kind of in the middle there, okay? And then 24 to 66. So you can really see at a glance, literally geographically, the whole book of Isaiah and where the prophecies are directed from that one slide. Okay? So with this portion, 13 to 27, dealing with the fact that God is bringing the whole world to himself, and this is contrasted with the idea of two cities. The city of, of Babylon kind of represents the world city uh, versus his city, which ultimately will become eventually the, the new Jerusalem. And so, God's uh, strong city of salvation in chapter 26 will stand in contrast to uh, chapter 24, this other city this world city. In chapter 13, um, you can see that it's an oracle, it says in verse 1, against Babylon. So it's going to be a judgment scene. Babylon is, is this, this jewel that's been propped up, that's filled with pride, and it's kind of, uh, John Oswald in his, uh, his lectures on Isaiah talks about the a balloon um, metaphor. That, that the nations prop themselves up and they expand like a balloon, um, and then sometimes they contract, you know, the, the amount of geography that they control. 
but then uh, if the balloon gets too big, what happens to it? It explodes. In, in a sense, that's that's what happens. So you know, by the time they get they get so big that they control the whole area, it's not long after that. Um, in fact, in a serious case, by the time they controlled everything, it was about 45 years later, and the balloon burst. And the um, the Babylonians, if I'm not mistaken, the Babylonians had helped them secure this. And then the Babylonians turned on them. And uh, the Babylonians turned on them, if I'm not mistaken, with the help of the Medes. And then um, after a time period, the Medes switched alliances and joined the Persians and then took over Babylon. And so the, the alliances, you know, they, they change based on you know, what, what you desire and what you want. So we reached um, chapter 13, as I mentioned, discussing the oracle against um, Babylon and the downfall of that in chapter 14. I want to touch briefly on chapter 14 because there's another controversial issue there. Chapter 14, verse 12, the phrase shining one or shining morning star um, or day star or sun of the dawn, all depending on your translations, is a point of contention for a lot of Christians. The first thing we need to understand is, is the historical context. I mean, you've got a good grasp of that at this point. So we don't want to pluck verses out, out of their context. Isaiah chapter uh, 13 and 14 is, is a prophecy directed against Babylon. So uh, whatever's going on here, it's got to be something about that or a connection uh, related to that. And so many times people... Uh, Christians equate this with some other passages in Job and Revelation in the New Testament and uh, Isaiah 14 is often said to be the downfall of Satan. The five I will statements that you find in verse number 13 and 14 are said to be the five I wills, the pride statements that, uh, that Satan uh, offers up and that causes his downfall. Okay, so problem is that nowhere does it say anything in Isaiah about Satan's downfall, and uh, Satan is not discussed uh, like that here. So, the term Lucifer was popularized in English from the King James translation, but the name does not come from Hebrew or even the Greek. It comes from the 4th century Latin translation of the verse. So, when you hear people, sometimes I'll hear my kids at my, my kids' Bible study talk about Lucifer, and as the morning star. The Latin word Lucifer is composed of, of these words that mean light. The same word is used in other places in the Latin Vulgate to translate the Hebrew terms that mean bright, especially associated with the sky. So in the Latin Vulgate in Job 11:17, your life will be brighter than the noonday. Its darkness will be like the morning. In 2 Peter 1.19, you will do well to pay attention to this as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Um, the morning star referring to uh, probably Venus being the planet that was first seen, the brightest planet, 
that was first seen. Um, this was used also in uh, poetry, Roman poetry. Let us hasten when first the morning star appears to the cool pastures while the day is new, while the grass is dewy. It's talking about in the early morning. So the term occurs in the plural form in Job 38, 32 to refer to some kind of star or constellation. Other forms of the word are used in similar ways to refer to lights or stars, and this reflects the Septuagint's translation of morning star to translate the Hebrew of Isaiah 14, 12. Um, so th there is um, most likely nothing to do with some individual that has fallen. This has grown up over the years as different verses were conflated. They were put together to form this theology, which the verses in themselves didn't hold to, but you put them all together and suddenly you got this, this new thing going on. So there's some New Testament passages okay, that were added. In 2 Corinthians 11:14, Paul says about false apostles, even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Luke 10, 18, and 19, the 70 come back and rejoice about their success. And Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you absolute authority to tread on serpents and scorpions, etc. So without ever examining these passages, they took these passages where Satan's falling like light and all this. And then Revelation 12, um, also, I don't know if I have that verse written out here, has another phrase related to it. Um, so they, they conflated those together and came up with this idea that became this doctrine of Satan equals Lucifer and the fall of Satan or Lucifer is in Isaiah 14 when in reality Isaiah 14 if you look at it is about a king an earthly king written to nations Jesus is the, the king. 
so uh, if you cross-reference this with uh, what happens with Nebuchadnezzar, you know, he's on the rooftop of his palace looking around, and he takes credit for everything that God has given him. And then God judges him and humbles him, and he spends seven years uh, without that. But when he humbles himself, finally and recognizes God, God gives him back the kingdom. I'll set up my throne above the stars. I'll sit in the mountain of the God's assembly in the remotest parts of the north. I will ascend above the high clouds. I will make myself like the most high. The two will be brought down to Sheol. So he says, I will ascend, but he'll be brought down to Sheol, this realm of the dead, in the deepest regions of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you. They'll look closely at you. Um, is this the man who caused the earth to tremble, who shook the kingdoms, who turned the world into a wilderness, who trampled its cities? We're talking about a, a, a human king who scared the world to death by his conquering, and now he has been conquered. That's what's going on here. And so I can continue on. I, I also see great parallels. I've mentioned several, but I see a lot of parallels between this and the book of Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar's own situation. So, um, that is a little bit of an aside on Isaiah 14 that I just think you should be aware of. We'll touch on it again when we get to Ezekiel, the book of Ezekiel in Ezekiel uh, 28. Alright? So, with the, I'm sorry, I should have had that up there the whole time. That's what happens when I don't have my, I didn't print my, my outline. So that was Isaiah 14 that we were just referring to. And, um, so, now we're, we're going to uh, jump quite a bit here, I think, and, um, 20, actually, let me, here, I'll leave that up for just a minute, because I have a couple other comments on the next section. Isaiah uh, 28 to 37, okay, is the next portion. In Isaiah uh, 28 to 37, if you've got the, uh, the historical context in the first five chapters and the call of Isaiah and your choices of sin and judgment or, or salvation and hope, and then in 6 to 12, you've got the coming king, and then in 13 to 27, you got what's his kingdom going to be like? It's going to be the whole world, all the nations. And then in 28 to 37, um, you got the one people that is going to come out of this uh, that will become co-equal. And so you have you have Egypt here, and you have Assyria, and then Babylon over here, and in the middle you got Canaan, and they're in the middle of this war, this tug of war that's going on. And God says, "I'm going to make all of you." folded into one people that all worship the same king, me. And so that's what he's talking about, how he's going to fold them all <coughs> together and they will become co-equal and all part of the kingdom and the nation. So the, the Lord's final purpose of this one world, one people, one God was set out in terms of the, the, the map that Isaiah then knew. Okay, Our map is a little bigger than his. Israel sandwiched in between the would-be superpower Egypt and the actual superpower of Assyria. But at the end, the Lord will unite them together. And that's what's going on in those chapters of 28 uh, to 37. While um, while it, uh, Assyria and then uh, Babylon will remove much of them, including Jerusalem's destruction, um, the Lord's cornerstone will remain in chapter 28, verse 16. <coughs> 28, 16. 
said, Look, I have laid a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. The one who believes will be unshakable. I will make justice the measuring line. And he continues on. And so there's still this cornerstone, just like there's still a remnant. There's still a, a stump. There's still, there's still something to start something new with. And so the question is, well, what's he going to do with this? What, what's a farmer going to do with this field plot that he's left here? How's he going to turn this into all the nations worshiping him? And so that is, that's the unfolding of, of how that's going to uh, take place. All right. So then in chapters 38 to 55, If, um, if the previous section was dominated, 28-37, by the topic of the deliverance of Jerusalem from the Syrian threat, and then the, 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 the proof of this through God's divine sovereignty, okay? Now we're going to look at how sovereignty and security and servant themes all come together in 38-55. to 55. Um, Chapter 30, if you're there, flip over uh, there for just a minute. Chapter 30, it begins with a woe to rebellious children. It says, they carry out a plan, but not mine. Let me tell you, God has a plan, and man has a plan. They make an alliance, but against my will, piling sin on top of sin. They set out to go down to Egypt without asking my advice, in order to seek shelter under Pharaoh's protection. Who's supposed to be their protection? God is, Yahweh is, and take refuge in their shadow. But Pharaoh's protection will become your shame. And refuge in Egypt's shadow, your disgrace. So they're trusting in the wrong source. Okay? A key theme all through Isaiah is who are you trusting in? Are you trusting in Yahweh? Or are you trusting in these other nations, these other peoples? Well, who or what are you trusting in? You're going to be shamed because of yourself. Egypt's help, verse 7, is completely worthless. Therefore, I call her Rahab who just sits. So it's not going to acquire for them what they wanted to acquire. Instead of trusting in God for security, they're going to choose security in making alliances with other nations, which are not going to pan out for them. All right? This is going to be um, an issue that Hezekiah will face. Um, Hezekiah, to his credit, will um, trust in God against the Assyrians that are camped outside of Jerusalem and have him surrounded, and God will deliver him in one night. 185,000 Assyrians will die. But then Hezekiah will go and he will take into his place the Babylonians. But why are the Babylonians there? To make an alliance. So as he shows them all that he has, he's showing off as pride, right? And so he is most likely priming the pumps for a potential future alliance with Babylon. And that's where Isaiah chastises him and says, those people that you just showed everything to, yeah, they're going to take everything you just showed them. You're not trusting in God. So that's an aspect that's going to come through here. Now, we also have the Holy One um, showing up again as Savior in chapters um, 38 to 55. This was started in, in, uh, in chapter 6, verse 6 to 7, the, the Holy One as Savior idea. And then the Messiah, the servant of the Lord, the sin bearer, who will be the Savior of the world. And these are our four servant songs, okay? And so what we're going to look at um, now is let's see here I think I have a, a comparison between the first 12 chapters and then the, the last 12 um, which I really probably should have moved this slide 
but it's here, so we'll look at it. At the beginning, there's a call to repentance and a promise of forgiveness. And at the beginning of this third section, there's a call to repentance and a promise of forgiveness. We're, we're going to look at the third, sec, second section, okay, in a second. But So uh, these are the sandwiches of the, the middle section. Um, speaks of God hiding them in both chapter 1 and 59. Talks about the wolf and the lamb lying down um, in 11 and 65. And then <clears throat> talks about um, this, this last comparison here. Um, on the left is, Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. And over on the, the third section, They shall go forth and look on the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me. Their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, they shall be abhorrent to all mankind. So you've got this turning, turning away of God. So you have these uh, parallel connections between the first and the third sections all right, of the book of Isaiah. And then in the middle of that is these servant songs. Okay, and so what I want to do now is this uh, chart is from Derushi. Now he adds not just the servant songs, but he has picked up on this idea of the theme of the gospel that is interspersed in this also, the good news. Okay, the euangelion. So what I want to do is I want to look at how these two um, work together in this section of the text, and this will take us a few minutes. Um, to go through this. So, both the the gospel, the good news, okay, that's what gospel means, good news, and the messianic servant who gets fleshed out in, in these um, passages. Alright? So, the, the idea of judgment and hope uh, running through here, but the servant and the good news is obviously going to be a large portion of hope. You can see the texts are listed for you, and over here, um, the good news section, the gospel 1, 2, and 3, and you got song 1, 2, 3, 4. I mentioned to you last class that some people uh, add a, a, a fifth song, okay, but we're just going to look at these main, main four. Okay? So, <clears throat> the good news in Isaiah. Alright? So, the good news in Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 40, uh, verses... Uh, 9 through 11, we, we read of this good news. They're not going to be on the screen, so. Zion, herald of good news, there's the word. Go up on a high mountain, Jerusalem, herald of good news, is the word. Raise your voice loudly, raise it, do not be afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. Um, the Lord comes with strength and the power established. So this idea of good news, which, so Isaiah chapter 40, God's people are comforted, all right? This is um, made famous also in um, what piece? Yeah, probably, right? Yeah. Uh, but yeah, actually, it's probably in both. But Handel's Messiah also, right? Um, and so, yeah. Are you a classical guy? No. I mean, I'm... You're an everything guy. <laughs> yeah, I'm everything You're a music guy, right? So, yeah, comfort, comfort my people, right? Um, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. So here in the section, we, ha we have this hope that's coming out, this idea of, of the good news there. In chapter 52, uh, verses 7 to 10, okay, we have another passage dealing with this. 
How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the heralds who proclaim peace, who brings good news of good things, who proclaim salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Notice that both say your God reigns. Where is this passage repeated in the New Testament? What book? No. It may actually be in more than one, but Romans. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news, right? Uh, Paul quotes this. And where is he getting it from? Isaiah. Um, and then Isaiah 61 verses uh, 1 to 3 continues this theme, this idea of the good news. The Spirit of the Lord God is on me because the Lord has appointed or anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. Good news to the poor. Who quotes this? Jesus. Jesus. Jesus handed the scroll at the temple and he quotes this and says, Today in your hearing this has been fulfilled. So here he's claiming to be fulfilling Isaiah chapter 61, um, at least verse 1. And then um, you can also look at Isaiah uh, 41, 27. So that's, about, that's the good news that is in I Isaiah. The verb 54 times proclaimed the good news, the noun 76 times. So the gospel was the essence of what Jesus taught on earth. Matthew 4, 23, he went through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Now, I want to make another point that if you haven't heard this, I want, I want you to really burn it in your brain. That's my way of saying remember it. Um, the gospel in the Bible is always about the kingdom. Okay? Now, um, this, this slide is from Jerushi because... Um, I just told you, his little chart. Um, he connects the good news with the servant psalms. Okay, so he has the word gospel italicized. Okay, um, underline the kingdom. You know, if, if you're writing this or if you were making the slides. Okay, gospel is the point, but it's the gospel of the kingdom. It's good. Good news is what gospel means. Okay, if you go check who was preaching what in the New Testament, John the Baptist shows up on the scene preaching first. What's he preaching? The good news of the kingdom. What Jesus shows, the first thing he's preaching is the good news of the kingdom. It's the kingdom all through and through. They're preaching the good news of the kingdom. <coughs> and uh, Jerusha would agree with me, by the way, because his textbook on Old Testament survey, uh, kingdom is his acronym for the entire outline of God's history. So it's, it's kingdom. Um, Luke 4.43, Jesus said, I must preach the good news of the what? The kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. The gospel is about what Jesus accomplished through his death and his resurrection. But the gospel, the good news, is uh, even more than that. That's the gospel in a nutshell. The gospel is bigger than that. The gospel is about the good news of the king of the universe, who, as we see in Isaiah, is bringing all the nations under one banner to know him and to worship him. And so 1 Corinthians 15 talks about the gospel that Paul preaches. Okay, So you've got this good news idea here as well. It finds its source in God. It was anticipated by the prophets in the Old Testament, and it concerns Jesus Christ as the Son of David and the Son of God. In Romans, Paul says he's a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle set apart for what? The gospel of God, the good news, which he promised beforehand through the what? Through the prophets that we're studying now in, in OT, right? The good news doesn't come in the New Testament. The good news is in the Old Testament. The gospel is the same gospel that was preached all through the Old Testament. What is it? To get in line under God's kingdom banner and let him be your king. That's what it's all about. 
The gospel is the means by which Jew and Gentile are to persevere into salvation, for in it alone is the righteousness of God revealed. I'm not ashamed, Paul says, of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation. So you see these passages here, and you're like, ah, oh, Kevin, it just says gospel by itself. Um, no kingdom is mentioned there. You go look at the rest of the context of Scripture, man. The good news is about God's kingdom. God's kingdom breaking in. The, the Messiah comes, and um, why is Herod upset and wants to kill all the two-year-olds and under in Bethlehem? Because there's a new king that's born. Okay, A new king has a kingdom. The good news is about the king and the kingdom. The end will come after the gospel is preached to all nations. The gospel of what? The kingdom. Matthew 24, 14. Will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as testimony to what? All the nations. Okay? Can you get any closer to what we're talking about in Isaiah in the section that, that uh, God is, is going to bring as king all the nations um, to know him? That's exactly what Jesus is talking about. Matthew 24. <clears throat> all right. So the first um, passage is be comforted for sin is pardoned in Isaiah chapter 40. Comfort, comfort my people. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from Yahweh's hand double for all of her sins. And so here we see that the, the good news, the idea of being comforted because your sin has been pardoned. And so you no longer have to, to worry and distress about that anymore. In verse uh, 9, okay, there's no need to fear, he says. We're, we're in Isaiah uh, chapter 40 again, okay? Verse 9, Zion, herald of the good news, go up on the high mountain, right, and proclaim this, okay? There's, there's, no, there's no fearing anymore, okay? Behold your God, he comes in strength and is ruling in verse number 10, he comes in strength and his power establishes his rule. His reward is with him and his gifts accompany him. Okay? Uh, and he cares for his flock, protecting and leading them in verse number 11. The servant's ministry shows up in, in, in 42. We're going to run out of time, guys. Um, this is the first of the servant songs. So the servant is going to bring justice to the nations. He will have absolute confidence. At this point, the question is, well, who's the servant? Is it Israel? Part of Israel? Or is it another? So at this point, it's not answered in chapter 42. Okay? The second servant song is chapter 49, and it's about his mission. His servant is called before he's even born. He's identified as Israel, the ideal representative of the nation. And his mission is to bring Israel back to the Lord and be a light to the nations, a covenant for the people. So that's the second. There's still, there's still two more of them. The third servant song in chapter 50, verse 44 through 11, is about the servant's suffering. And here, in contrast to Israel, the servant is completely obedient to the Lord. Verses 10 to 11 are an appeal to the people to trust the Lord. Those who walk in darkness have tried to create their own light. However, it consumed them instead of saving them. Military power and alliances would not prevail. It doesn't matter. The money, the military might, all, all this politicking around, that leaves them bankrupt and empty. And in uh, 51, 1 through 52, 12, Israel is called upon to wake up and remember their history. And 51 to 52 is then going to lead uh, to the fourth servant song, but um, in the middle, uh, 
use too. I think this is out of order. <coughs> That's chapter 55. Yes. So the, the fourth servant song is 52.13 to 53.12. Again, the verse numbers were added later and they're not always accurate. Okay. This is a clear section that actually begins in chapter 52, verse 13. It doesn't begin in 53. All right. And this is the servant substitutionary atonement. This is the Messiah, the servant who comes and takes your place. It's a well-known passage. And 51, 1 to 12 is a call to Zion to respond. It says, pay attention or listen in verse 1, 4, and 7. And then awake, awake, rouse yourself, rouse yourself, awake, awake, depart, depart. And so this leads to the attention getting behold. It shows up in King James at least, behold, 52, 13. And um, originally I intended to now spend a bunch of time on the, the suffering servant of, of chapter 53, but we don't have the time for me uh, to do that anymore. And so then with that you also have this good news in um, chapter 55, 7 to 10, the peace with God is possible, and then the salvation aspect, your God reigns in verse 7, and comfort for them in wasted places. And then that um, leads to the good news number 3 in chapter 61, 1 to 3, the messenger's preparation and the messenger's uh, task that is listed. The Spirit of Yahweh has anointed the messenger, this is what we read a minute ago, Jesus quotes part of that uh, first and part of the second verse when he reads that scroll in the temple. The Spirit of Yahweh has anointed this messenger to proclaim good news to the poor, that's the afflicted. Okay, Who are the poor? Those who are so broken by life they have no more heart to try. Those who are bound up in their various addictions that liberty and release are a cruel mirage. Those who think they will never again experience the favor of the Lord or see his just vengeance meted out against those who have misused them. Those who think their lives hold nothing more than ashes, sackcloth, and the fainting heaviness of despair. These are they to whom the servant Messiah shouts, Good news. That's a quote from John Oswald in his commentary, New International Commentary in the Old Testament. So Jesus comes to announce this good news. And then the, the task is what the, the messenger is going to do, which we've already kind of unfolded um, part of it. Now, this idea of servant occurs 20 times in Isaiah 40 to 53. So that's 13 chapters, 20 times, all in uh, the singular. That's eight times in these four servant songs that we're talking about. Others, all with apparent reference to the entire nation, possibly, 12 different times. The word servant also occurs 11 times in Isaiah 54 to 66, but all in the plural. So, it appears that at first when the servant idea shows up, the question is, is this the nation or who is it? But as the servant songs continue on, it becomes more and more clear that it's actually referring to a single individual person who is going to come and who is going to do the work that was unable to be accomplished by anybody else. And that is, is going to be Christ, who is the Messiah. That's Isaiah 50. If you've never studied Isaiah 53, um, study it. It's 
a, it's a phenomenal passage of scripture. So, and that leaves us to the, the last section of the book, the Holy One as King and the Messiah as Conqueror. And you can see some of the verses listed here on the board. Um, additionally, there's three passages that talk about the city of Jerusalem, if you want to write them down, um, which they match with the three passages we talked about in the first section of the book, chapters 1 to 37, talking about the city of Jerusalem. This is from uh, Alex Motier. 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 Um, so the city of Jerusalem is in chapter 65, verses 17 to 25. And then it's in 66, 7 to 13, and 66, 18 to 24. Obviously, I'm not going to ask you for those on, on the test. I'm giving them to you for your own reference. Um, but here again, you have the Holy One as, as king this time. Remember the, the triangle upside down that we had in the beginning? It showed, um, as Isaiah is prophesying through each section of this, the different aspects of God. The Holy One as, as king here, and then the Messiah. Whoops. So, <clears throat> all right, that's actually the, the end of the slides before um, the video. So, um, we touched on six a little bit, 40 and 41 we only briefly touched on. Did you have any anything else you wanted to ask related to that? do is I'll just let you, uh, I'll take the 10 minutes and I'll play the, the second video. So they'll wrap up some of what we already said and he'll talk about some other stuff as well in the video. So you'll pick up a few other pieces of information. But he'll put that all together and he'll probably review the, the first few seconds of the first um, half of the book. So remember that you could have two or three divisions of the book. They followed a two division when they when they made these, the video from the Bible Project. Um, but you'll you'll see even the people that do the two division, 139, 40 to 66, when they get to 40 to 66, they normally divide at 55 anyway. So then the question really becomes, um, why don't you divide in three? But the other question becomes, do you divide at 37 like Mahir or at 39 like most of them? So...